Yeah, it's good to be home. You might, well, thank you. Uh, you might have uh, noticed I was away a couple of Sundays, and I was in Mexico working at the Mount of Olives Children's, uh, uh, it's an orphanage, and wow, what a special work. We've been working on a building, so I got my grubbies on, and I did some tile work. I worked with uh, Andre, and Andre's a specialist in uh, tile work. I mean, that's his area of expertise. So it was a little daunting to work with Andre, but he said, I have a future. Uh, he, I, could, I could become a tile guy, so I, I was pleased about that. Well, this morning we return to Acts, and we're in chapter 18. We're going to pick up uh, with uh, verse 18. And uh, just uh, let me show you kind of where we're at. I think I have a map here. There we go. And uh, you can see from the arrow pointing to the little dot, and just to the left of that dot, if you can make it out, is the word Ephesus. And that entire area of which uh, the city of Ephesus is uh, just on the left end of is modern Turkey, which makes me think of Thanksgiving. <laughs> but Paul has moved from Achaia, and you can see the little red line making its way across the Aegean Sea, to what is sometimes called Asia Minor, to Ephesus. And then as you follow those arrows, uh, the red arrows plotting, Paul's going to make his way uh, further, and he'll then go down to Jerusalem and then make his way up to Antioch, which is where he began this, uh, this second missionary journey. So he moves down here to Caesarea. We'll read about this in the text. Then he comes to Jerusalem. Uh, would you always go up to Jerusalem? And then he'll make his way back to Antioch. So he's reporting on what's happened uh, from those who commissioned him and sent him originally in Antioch and then, of course, the Church of Jerusalem. But we're also going to read, uh, and this is the start of the tour, but today we're also going to read that he will make his way back to Ephesus. And that will be in chapter 19. So I hope that kind of gives you an orientation. And I'll just leave that up a moment while we read. So let's look at this as we continue our series in Becoming the Church, stories of the first Jesus people uh, from the book of Acts. So looking at chapter 18, verse 18, I'm reading from the New International Version. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had cut his hair off at Cancrea because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. And so you have a picture of them coming to the port, and he goes into the city, 
He does spend some time in the synagogue. He gets back on a ship and he goes on. But he leaves Priscilla and Aquila. They went with him. They stay there. When he, verse 22, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. That'd be the church at Jerusalem, because you always go up to Jerusalem. It's not only higher, but it's holier. And then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. This would be his third time to make his way through those regions to the churches he originally established that he went back and visited, and now he's going again. He's a real discipler. He wants to make sure that they're continuing to grow and help them in their walk with Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, verse 24, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor. And mine says, as a footnote, with fervor in the Spirit. Please note that if you're if your passage in your version has a marginal reading. And taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately, the NIV says, or more accurately. Which is important because it's the same word which was used earlier when he said he spoke and taught accurately the facts or the things about Jesus. I hope you noticed that. He began to speak, oh, excuse me, verse 27, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, which is where Corinth is, where Paul and Priscilla and Aquila had just come from, the brothers encouraged him. Who are the brothers? Those would be the believers in Ephesus. And they wrote to the disciples there in Achaia at Corinth to welcome Apollos. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. That's what the word Christ means, anointed one. And the anointed one to the Jews is the awaited Messiah. So Christ is a synonym, it's an equivalent to, and whenever you read the word Christ, you should think Messiah, especially in the epistles of Paul. Messiah, in Greek, which is the New Testament was written in Greek, you, of course you're going to render it Christ. But it carries everything that was entailed in the word Messiah when you read the Old Testament. When you think about the whole expectation and focus and leaning of the Old Testament in terms of the promises and the plan and the purpose of God. Verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. By the way, Ephesus is a 
huge city. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire. The population of Ephesus is estimated to have been, by scholars, between 300 and 500,000 people. That is a lot of people. Not maybe by today's standards, but by then, yes. And if it's the third and the largest in the Roman Empire, that makes it third largest, essentially, in the world. It's it's amphitheater seated 25,000 people at once. It had a temple to Diana, or Artemis, which was a wonder, one of the seven wonders of the world. And they were very proud of it. So this is a modern-day San Francisco or New York or L.A. And, of course, you're going to find all kinds of uh, exotic and different uh, religions and positions there not to prejudice or shape your thinking about these uh, men that Paul encounters here in Ephesus. Continuing in the second half of verse 1, there he found some disciples. You need to just underline that. Some disciples. Doesn't say the disciples, disciples of Jesus, disciples of John the Baptist. Just says some disciples. Disciples, very distinctive in the book of Acts, because everywhere else, every use of the word disciples is of disciples of Jesus. But here, whereas they always have the article, there's no article here. It's just some disciples. And what does Paul say? He asks him a question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? Interesting sequence of questions. John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the coming one or the one coming after him that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Luke highlights two founding episodes. I mean, when you think of the sweep of what he's doing in Acts, this dual work, starting with the Gospel of John, and then Acts, all of one piece, two of the largest books in the New Testament, one 40 feet in length, as a scroll on 135, but meant to be read together to the same person, This dual work of Jesus and the church. And when we start in Acts, right away in verse 5, we're told that they're to wait for the baptism of the Spirit. John, it says there, verse 5, John baptized with water, 
but wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, we read, the Spirit comes, they're to wait for the Spirit that will come upon them with power that they might be witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the extremes, the edges of the earth. And of course, in the sweep of Acts, that, that takes him ultimately to Rome. So what is Luke doing here? Well, along the way, he's constantly showing the progression and growth of the church. And here, we've come to this mega city. And by the way, Paul spends almost three years here in Ephesus. And he gives us these founding episodes of the growth of the gospel, of the power of God's gospel, the spread of God's gospel, the march of God's gospel, if you will. And remember, uh, this is descriptive. I mean, he's telling us, yes, he's, every historian is selective. He has to decide, you know, how to manage what he's going to say. But he chooses these two episodes to introduce us to the founding work of Paul and his associates. Remember Priscilla and Aquila and Paul. But also the founding of the church. And it's obvious, I think we're to expect it and see that there were believers there even before Paul came. And so this is the picture we're given. Both of these episodes are obviously, they're connected by other subtle things, but obviously the mention of John's baptism. Did you notice that? I mean, it just jumps right out at you. And it's, we're meant to compare Apollos and some disciples, it seems to me. It's inevitable. And so because it mentions baptism... And they're brought together by the issue of John's baptism. I thought today would be a good occasion to talk about baptism. I'm going to talk about what Luke is showing us, but I also want to go just a little beyond that for our benefit and talk about baptism because I think it really comes to the surface, the bigger picture. And I think that to Theophilus, to readers of Luke who understand baptism, there's a bigger picture to be made. Now, there are many opinions of what's going on here. And if you read, take books or Bible studies or commentaries, you're going to read a lot of different opinions about what's going on. I'm going to tell you my opinion. And I'm going to tell you up front so that we're perfectly clear as we go along. Then I'm going to show you a few things as to why I believe what I believe. First, I got three things I want to share with you about my opinion. First, the first one, Apollos has the Holy Spirit. And some disciples do not. Apollos is a follower of Jesus. And these disciples are not. Okay, that's my, that's my first point. 
Not my point in your notes, but my first point about my position or opinion. Second, if Apollos or these disciples were asked, in fact, Paul asks the disciples in chapter 19, the some disciples. But if, if they were asked, and they are in chapter 19, both would say they knew only the baptism of John. Not baptism in the name of Jesus. Are we clear on this so far? And baptism in John and baptism in the name of Jesus are both baptisms of water. Are we clear? Okay. By the way, let me. this is just a little aside. Can you be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ? And I would even add, can you have the Holy Spirit without water baptism? Yes. Without water baptism in the name of Jesus? Yes. Can you receive the gift of the Spirit without water baptism in the name of Jesus? Yes. Here's another little qualification or addition of by the way. Why in Acts do we get the picture that conversion, that is when somebody acknowledges that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that He is Lord. If you're Messiah, you're Lord of the world. I hope you understand that. You're the creator of the world's Messiah. So if someone believes in Jesus the Messiah, acknowledges that He's the Messiah, the Lord, puts, in other words, belief in Him, trust in Him, acknowledges Him. Without water baptism, in the name of Jesus, can you be a follower of Jesus without water baptism? Yes. But why is it in Acts, when someone becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, that generally water baptism is associated with belief in Jesus and the Holy Spirit is associated with belief. Why? Because baptism, get this, underscore this, baptism is the formal, public acknowledgement of faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, you could walk up to somebody at a, at a coffee shop Uh, sit down at the table outside with somebody you didn't meet, and you could say, are you a Christian? And they could say, yes. They they could then go on to uh, really verify through what they say, that they really are a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. That's one way. But in the early church, the way to, so to speak, formally say, yes, I'm putting it on the line, I'm a follower of Jesus, it was baptism. And so, so close together chronologically, you have the Holy Spirit poured out on a person, given to a person, the gift of the Holy Spirit given to a person when they acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, and baptism, water baptism in the name of Jesus, which is in the authority of Jesus, an acknowledgement that He's Lord. That all happens right together. 
Are we clear? Now remember, by the way, the Holy Spirit came upon the 120 disciples, Jesus' people, that were in the upper room in chapter 2 of Acts. The 12 and the hundred, uh, part of the 120, they all received the Holy Spirit without water baptism in the name of Jesus. Had you ever thought of that? In chapter 10, a point is made in the book of Acts that Cornelius received the Holy Spirit while Peter was telling him about the Lord. I mean, this guy was a a devout, sincere seeker, and as Peter kind of laid it all out in front of him, the truth just was connecting in his heart. It was clear, obviously, because the Holy Spirit came upon him that he believed in Jesus. And then he was baptized. But of course, in Acts chapter 2, the same chapter in which the Holy Spirit came upon the church, as Peter was talking and delivering his first sermon to the, to the crowds about what God had done, they said, what must we do to be saved? He said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And it all happened together. And the baptism wasn't, so to speak, for the forgiveness of sins, but when you acknowledge Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is right there with it. That's a part of acknowledging Him as the Messiah and what He did on the cross. Remember, too, the Spirit was active throughout the Old Testament. In fact, when you read the Gospel of Luke, the Holy Spirit is at work in John the Baptist, in, John, in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, in Elizabeth, the aunt of Mary, Luke 1, 41, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, chapter 1, verse 67, and Simeon, who received Jesus in his arms and prophesied when he was brought to the temple in Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 27. Why do I say that? What is critical that Acts teaches us? Look with me. Turn in your Bible to chapter 2 of Acts. Remember, this is that sermon that Peter preached right after the Spirit had been poured out on the church. You should take that little red pen and circle verse 33, or the word, the letters, the numbers, (laughs) 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, with the resurrection. Exalted to the right hand of God, He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out that promised Holy Spirit, that's the point, what you now see and hear. That is the defining work of Jesus Christ in His exaltation. 
when He ascends to the right hand of the Father, completing His work, the resurrection, the next great thing, the thing that has been promised is that the Holy Spirit is poured out. The Holy Spirit in your life and in mine, the existence and reality of the Holy Spirit in the church is the proof of the, of the resurrection. It is the ratification, it is the verification, it is the corollary work of God. And it is, Jesus has been exalted, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church. That is a defining work. So why, when the Holy Spirit was active in the, in the Old Testament, and active even in some of the significant characters in the kind of coming together of the gospel that we read about in Luke, why is it now that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church? Because we are to be empowered to be His witnesses, to be Jesus-like, to know His presence in our life, His resurrection presence in our lives. I mean, think about it. Think about what God has done. That's why... For example, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, am I right there? I think it's verse 13 or 14. Verse 13, we're told that the Holy Spirit is a seal or a pledge or an earnest as they translate it. It's interesting, that very word is used of a wedding ring in modern Greek language. Today, an erbon is a wedding ring. The Holy Spirit is our seal. It says it again in chapter 4, verse 30. And we're also told that in 2 Corinthians 5.5. Why does it... Why is it when Paul, in chapter 8 of Romans, talks about the Holy Spirit, chapter 8, verse 15, he talks about the Holy Spirit in connection with adoption. He says that the Holy Spirit in your life confirms or, I mean, it just, the Holy Spirit, this would be a good way of putting it, inspires you to say, Abba, Father. An intimate expression of a child to the child's daddy. Not a formal, but a most intimate relational expression of the, of the most profound relationship. He says it again in Galatians chapter 4, verse 7. So the point is, is that when Jesus was exalted, the Holy Spirit was poured out on His people as a seal to ratify this new status that we have in Jesus the Messiah. He's Lord. And when we acknowledge Him, we become a part of this company of the people of God. Now this is so profound, so important for the church to understand and for us to realize in our own personal lives. Here's a third thing. 
Okay, I, I said, first, Apollos has the Holy Spirit and some di- disciples do not. Second, I said, if Apollos or these disciples were asked about baptism, they knew only the baptism of John, not baptism in the name of Jesus. Both were a water baptism. And third, Apollos required only correction. These disciples in chapter 19 required conversion. I hope you see that. Apollos is not baptized. Now, i got to tell you, you can't make an argument from silence. So somebody could say, well, maybe he was, and Luke didn't mention it. Are you telling me, if Luke is trying to show us that Apollos is not a believer, that he wouldn't mention that he was baptized after Priscilla and Aquila converted him? It says they, were, they corrected him. The words more accurate are used. Not, con- not notions that this is a huge turnaround. So, these disciples are converted, and I think that we'll see that. So what's Luke's point? What's my point this morning? I think that these two episodes show us something that is really the theme or the strong, bold thread that runs through Acts, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And it also emphasizes that it's, it's not the water. It's the Spirit. Jesus' people know it's not the water. It's the Spirit. And that's the main point this morning. It's the water. No, it's not the water. It's the Spirit. Maybe I, There we go. And what we want to see is it's more than water. And I think we see this when we look at... I'm out of time. Holy smoke. I was just getting going. (laughs) Well, how about if I do this uh, next week? Will that be all right? I'll come back because there's just some, some rich, rich stuff that we need to think about when it comes to baptism. Time flies when you're having fun. (laughs) I was baptized when I was eight. I can remember... (laughs) It's funny how as you get older, you can't remember a lot of things, and then some things, some absurd little details get clearer and clearer. I can remember. I mean, just as though it were last week's, standing next to my mom in church and her singing. It's amazing how just singing can communicate so much to another person. But I wanted to be baptized. I really did. uh, I just, I loved Jesus as a little, as a child. So I remember uh, the pastor was Pastor Brown. And he came to our, our house. Um, my parents' first house was on 1938 Chelsea Avenue in Modesto. 
Pastor Brown came to the house. He sat with me on the couch. This is very scary stuff for an eight-year-old. I do remember what he taught me about baptism. He said, baptism is like putting on a uniform. I, some of you have played sports or you, you've become a part of, of something. I mean, it was your, you desired to become a part of that. You wanted to become a part of that. Um, some of you will watch a game on television today, either a baseball game or a football game, or maybe you saw something yesterday, and I think, can you imagine what it feels like to put on that uniform? Say, man, you know, uh, I'm an Oakland Raider. You know, I'm a San Francisco 49er. I'm in an elite group, you know, that can kind of have that feeling. But that, that does communicate to me. You know, I'm a sailor in the United States Navy. Or I'm a Marine. We could go on. Baptism is our identification with Jesus Christ. Part of a growing understanding of what we do in baptism is a growing understanding and a deepening of our acknowledgement of who Jesus is. And we are outfitted for that with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in your life if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. So let me just conclude by saying, today and throughout this week, walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5.16. Who are you going to follow? Where are you going to go? Walk in the Spirit. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. What's going to occupy your mind? What's going to be most important? What's going to trump the way you think about another or the way you look at a certain situation? Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Who's going to influence you, guide you? Maybe you came into church today and there was something really on your heart or mind, and you, maybe subtly, if I kind of picked at you, you would say, you know, there was this faint hope, or maybe it was a really strong one that God would speak to you today. Say something to you because you desire to hear from Him in your life. Maybe about one of those situations that you're facing that's weighing on you, that's kind of unsettling you. Be filled with the Spirit, Paul says. Don't be the, under the influence of other inebriating or influential things. Be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Walk with Him. Set your mind on Him. And who is this Holy Spirit? This Holy Spirit is the very endowment of Jesus Christ. If you were to read and study, take your concordance and read all the verses on the Holy Spirit, you'd be drawn to chapter 14, 15, 16 of the Gospel of John, where Jesus says to his disciples, I'm not going to leave you orphans. You're going to be adopted. I'm going to send another, a helper. And that word another 
is just like me. (laughs) You can tell the Spirit because the Spirit has that Jesus character. That Jesus quality. And that's God's goal for your life. That we should be made and conformed to the very image of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection will be that final conforming act. That's pretty exciting stuff. Ponder that this week. Let's stand together. Well, gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you will, um, through your Spirit, prompt and tug. We know, Father, that we can grieve you. We can quench the work of the Spirit in our lives. Your promptings, your leadings, your comfort, your encouragement. Help us to walk in faith with you through the power of your Spirit. To realize that's you leading and guiding and to trust you and to grow in our faith this week. As we become more like Jesus Christ, And we become a part of the expression and spread of the truth of the gospel of what you've done in Jesus Christ and in us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. I'm going to be down here with some of the pastoral staff and elders. If you'd like to pray this morning, we invite you to come.